Well, good morning and welcome again, Encounter Church. It's such a, it's a good day. It's such a good day. I'm so happy to be with everybody. There's a ton of you that are like, uh, hey, I haven't uh, been around in like a year or more, and this is the first Sunday back. And so I'm just, I'm thrilled today. I had like four or five of those conversations out in the parking lot. So I'm just, I'm really excited. Also, today's the first day that we have a team, a small team, production and music team over at our Fulton Heights location, kind of getting the bugs out of the system. So they're watching, they're worshiping with us today. That's awesome. For those of you who are going to call it Encounter Your Church Home, in Fulton Heights. August 22 is your soft open, the time when we start to all worship together over there, and then you invite your one to our grand opening Sunday after Labor Day, September 12. As we just heard, we're starting to build that next-gen team, so we're looking for 20 people. We're over halfway there uh, for our next-gen team to teach the next generation about the love of Jesus. Okay, today we're continuing on this series called Good Question, and the idea of the series is that growth change, transformation, all of these things come from usually asking or being asked good questions. And Jesus was like a master at this. He asked over a hundred questions. We kicked off the series and we heard Jesus in a boat in a storm with his disciples ask ask them, why are you so afraid? And the answer was a little bit, a little bit obvious, like there's a storm, but Jesus has a way, doesn't he, of getting, is this, is this a fear thing or is this maybe a faith thing? Ooh, that was part one. Uh, Part two, last week, Jesus approached a man who has been blind. And he says, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Like, we know that God cares. Do you believe that God can? And I just want to be the kind of community that reminds each other that we have a cross, church, that tells us that God cares. We have an empty grave that says that God can Next week is important because next week we address maybe one of the most common questions that I'm asked. It's about doubt, particularly spiritual doubt. And I want us to be the kind of community that addresses that head on. That this is the kind of community that where we don't, we don't push doubts and questions away because Jesus didn't push doubts and doubters away. Jesus showed up in the midst of them, in the midst of the disciples post-resurrection and had the audacity to ask them and us, why do you still doubt? He invites the questions in. He invites the doubters in. And so, so we're going we're gonna to do that together next week. Uh, today, we see Jesus approach a man struggling with this a particular kind of affliction for 38 years. 38 years. Now I just, I like pause on that because at 37, I can't imagine what it would be like to struggle with something, a particular kind of affliction, for almost four decades. But I've walked along many of you who have. I've walked along many of you who are on the first half of what seems like a 40-year at least journey. And so I've learned enough about some of those journeys to to recognize some of them and and to honor those in our time together and say, this isn't just a story about a man in the Bible 2,000 years ago, church. This is our story. And this could even be your story. So we're going to dig into our story here in just a minute, but I want you to hear about this man and, and also to look at the story, to listen to the story with a, with a lens that says, this is also my struggle. This is also the way that I've been dealing with chronic pain. That I've been trying to do everything, everything that I can, going from doctors and specialists, 
trying the oils, essential and otherwise, ordering things from Instagram, just doing anything and everything that I possibly can in order to experience some kind of relief from the migraines, relief from the headaches, relief from the pain, and it's just not happening yet. This is a, this is a story where we put up, where we put up some of our, our addictions, maybe some of them that we've, we've learned and cultivated over the last year. And we've kind of nursed them and they've blossomed into something. And we're going, man, I've lived with this thing so long, I may as well have a room in my house. I don't know if I'm ever going to live a part of it. This is a time when we recognize and honor that sometimes those relationships in our life just like aren't as they should be, aren't as they could be. Maybe, maybe it's a romantic thing. Maybe it's a friendship that's just never going to go deep. And it's just like chronically shallow. Maybe it's a work thing. Somebody said recently, people don't quit their jobs be, often because of the work. They quit their jobs because of the people they work with and the people they work for. Just showing up day in and day out and just like, it's not working. It's been so long and I've invested so much and it's still not working. Like it would be helpful to you in your journey as we dig into the text this morning to read, to read it with a lens through your affliction, through your struggle that has been a part of your life for not days or weeks. We're talking months, years, potentially decades. And we're going to see how one moment in the presence of Jesus changes everything. So if you'd like to follow along, John chapter 5 is where we're going to go. John chapter 5, starting off in verse 1 where John writes that sometimes later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals, he includes that just to say, it's crowded. There's going to be a lot of people around. It's festival time. They're in a city. It's busy. There was a, now there in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. <laughs> you kind of get the sense, like, when you read this stuff sometimes, you're like, was that, was all of that information really necessary? Like, 2,000 years later, Sheep Gate, five covered colonnades, pool, Bethesda in Aramaic. This isn't written in Aramaic. This is written in Greek. They, they spoke Arabic, but like, was that really necessary? For John, it is, right? And this has nothing to do necessarily with the point with our takeaway this morning about struggling these afflictions for 38 years, but it does have everything to do with how we read the Bible because John wanted us to know just exactly where this was happening, not necessarily for our sake, because he's writing this in that first generation after Jesus' death and resurrection. He's going, listen, you want to hear a crazy story? Go find a guy who struggled with an affliction for almost 40 years. He's going to tell you a crazy story. You go find, this is how you find him. It's Bethesda in Aramaic. You're going to need that because that's the language that people speak over there. Look for the five covered colonies. Look for the gate called the Sheep Gate. There's a pool of water nearby. Go. You're going to hear some, some wild stories over there. True stories. These these aren't just like fiction fairy tales somewhere. John is like, no, no, no. You have to go talk to the eyewitnesses yourself. It's amazing. I love that. I also love that that he identifies the pool of water by the sheep gate. Listen, I'm not a city planner. I'm not an architect. I'm not, but I just, by show of hands, like who would like to go swimming in a naturally occurring spring-fed pool of water downhill from a sheep gate, right? Yeah, not great, not awesome. I don't know what's up with that, but that's just like what it was. And that's also like, you know, the Bible 
that's just where it was, right? John's not making up this story. He's just going, okay. So they were hanging out of the sheep gate. There was a lot of people around. All kinds of people were gathered around. And I do mean all kinds. Verse 3. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie. And he gives kind of a, a non-exhaustive list. Uh, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And you get the sense that there's a lot more people. It's a, it's a great number of disabled people were lying around this pool. It wasn't a man-made pool, like I said. It was a naturally occurring, it was a spring-fed pool that people would kind of gather around. Uh, the tradition, kind of the backstory on why they were gathering around there is because they believed that, that occasionally, on irregular intervals, an angel would come down from heaven and would, and would stir, miraculously stir the water, and the water would bubble up and according to, to tradition, the next person that would enter into those waters after the angel stirred it would be healed of the affliction that they were suffering from no matter how long they had been suffering. And so that's why you have this all kinds of people gathered around, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. They're all laying around, except unlike Yellowstone's Old Faithful, which goes off with regular 92-minute intervals. If something else happens beside that, like Super Volcano was coming, like it's happening. No, no, it's not regular. It's not Old Faithful. It's extremely Old Unfaithful. This thing, the water, the bubbling, the stirring up, it could take days if they were lucky. Sometimes it was weeks in between stirrings, sometimes months. And meanwhile, everybody's just kind of hanging out, just watching and waiting for their moment to find relief, for their moment to find restoration. So one day, Jesus looks at this crowd, and he doesn't just see a crowd. He looks and he sees individuals. He sees people. He sees you. Verse 5, one who was there, who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. I'm going to say something. I don't love the word invalid, right? Just the way I look at it, it sounds a lot like invalid, um, which kind of comes suspiciously close to how the world views people, not how Christians view people. Because Christians view people with infinite dignity, value, and worth. The world views people based on what their bodies can do. I know they base worth, the world views people based on what they can produce and what they can do. So I don't love invalid, but I also don't love like looking through the Bible to find a translation of the Bible that uses the word that you prefer instead. So we're going to go with it anyway. This guy's hanging out there. Uh, he's paralyzed. For 38 years he's been hanging out, verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition, so Jesus knew he was in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Obviously, he wants to get well, Jesus. He's hanging out by a pool for 38 years. Obviously, Jesus, this come, this is so incredibly obvious. He wants to get well. It's edging on insulting, isn't it? Do you want to get well? If you're watching this, there's like a cringe factor like, oh, Jesus, seriously? Like, you're going to ask him in front of everybody? Oh. Do you want do you want to get well? Um, it's, a, it's, a good, it's a good question, actually. That Jesus stops, he slows down, he takes a moment, and he, and he asks the guy, honestly, do, do you want to... 
Like knowing what it's going to take, what it's going to cost. Do you want this? Um, Middle Eastern researcher um, Ken Bailey, this guy who hung out among these Bedouin tribes in the, uh, in the Middle East, tribes that had traditions and cultures that were almost unchanged for thousands of years. And he'd say, That's a, it's a good question because one of the societal factors at play is that he made a living. He lived for 38 years. Uh, he made a living off from the generosity of others because people knew about his particular affliction and they didn't travel, they didn't go very many places at the time. So the same people over and over knew about his particular affliction. And so there was likely a community of people who took it upon themselves to care for him and to look out for this guy and to, and to meet his needs at least from day to day. And so Bailey just points out, like, do you want to get well? It's worth asking the question because if he was suddenly well... Along with that restoration comes a responsibility. Like he's, his source of income starts to dry up and he's going to have to find something else. He's been afflicted. I don't know if he's from birth. We don't know that. But he's at least 38 years in an agricultural society. I mean, this is a heavy emphasis on manual labor. It's possible his best days are behind them. That weighs on me heavily as a 37-year-old to even just acknowledge. But he's at least approaching 40. He's maybe much over. Seriously, Jesus goes, do you actually want this added responsibility? I think Jesus asked that guy the question. At the same time, it's like Jesus is asking us that responsibility. Do you want this added responsibility? Now, before you're just like, yes, give me the responsibility. Somebody, somebody asked me that question one time. I was, uh, I was in school at the time, and I was working for a restaurant for a steakhouse, and my manager came by one time and said, you know, have a seat. Uh-oh. No, 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 it's not that. We're going the other direction. Have a seat. Um, we believe that we can trust you. You're going to seminary, so we're hoping we can trust you. <laughs> um, do you... Would you take uh, this promotion that we're offering, right? And, and promotion always means two things. Well, hopefully it means two things. Uh, more money and more responsibility. And like a promotion is always a good, do you want this? Obviously, this is an insulting question. Of course I want the promotion. Of course I want to get well. I mean, yes, lay it on me. And so they promote me to, it wasn't manager, it wasn't assistant manager, it was manager's assistant, which years later I'd be introduced to the to the job title, assistant to the regional manager, and it sounds suspiciously close to that. And it's kind of like, that's kind of what it was. That was an offer's reference for those of you. Just want to confirm that. And uh, it wasn't like a glamorous position. In fact, they gave me the keys to the restaurant, the steakhouse, and I was like, man, have I arrived. They're trusting me with like the keys to the place. And then I realized that you only have the keys when nobody else is expected to be there except for you. And for a restaurant... Those are some terrible hours. A couple of you work in restaurants and you're going, nope, no, that's, sorry, checks out. I'm, I mean, I'm there closing up shop, accepting my big promotion, my responsibility, my $3 an hour increase on that. And at 2 a.m., I'm like, count, literally counting pennies to make sure that the computers, like, are sinking to the cent. I'm thinking, like, I'm spending my life, like, counting. Is this, what I, is this what I want? And I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that the computer system that they used booted up with a floppy disk. And I'm, 
I recognize I'm a little old, older than many of you, but I'm not like computer floppy disk in the workplace kind of old. So there's this added emphasis at 2 a.m. counting my pennies where I'm also like, man, if this system goes down, the whole chain is coming down. I mean, it is built on a house of cards resting on this kid's back. I don't want this responsibility at all. Do you want to get well? No, no. I want to go home. That's what I want. I want to be done with this. It's, listen, it's worth Jesus stopping and asking the question, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cost something. Do you want it? It's worth stopping and asking the question. Because I think, I think Jesus also knows that a peculiar thing starts to happen when we struggle, when all of us struggle over, over a season. When we just like day in and day out, year in and year out, we struggle with the same things. Actually, three things, three things start, start to happen. When problems persist for a long, long time in our lives, discouragement sets in. Discouragement rises. Discouragement happens. That's the first one, when problems persist for a long, long time. You've sat and you've prayed and you've lifted it up to God and you've tried and you've talked to people and you've gone to the doctors, you've been referred to the specialist and still nothing happens. It's not a good marriage. It's not a bad marriage. It's just kind of waffling in no man's land. This like middle territory. And you've, you've ordered the books. You've done devotionals. His needs, her needs. Men are from Venus. Women are from Mars. Right? Like you've done this. I think I got that wrong. You've done this whole thing. You've tried. You've talked to people, counseling. Right? And nothing seems to change. Nothing gives. And it's just kind of it's just kind of wallowing. And right, discouragement starts to step in when problems persist. And you start to believe, is this all there is? Is this what it is and all it, it could be? And pretty soon, problem persists. And that discouragement answers the question, yes, I think it might be. I think this is maybe God's best for me in this area of life. I, I get this a little. You guys, some of you get this a lot. I get this a little. I mean, for the last year or so, I was, I was a part of this exercise group, and, uh, and we just kind of like, we just get together in a park and we exercise. It's ridiculous. Uh, but we're doing something called a burpee. Some of you don't know what that is. God bless you. I hope that you never have to find out. But it's, uh, it's, it's lying down and getting up real fast. That's, <laughs> that's all it is, right? And somehow in the lying down part of it, uh, and then getting up real fast, lying down, I like bent my, my wrist back, kind of, right? And it like, I hurt it. And, uh, and a little, little time went by and it was fine, you know? And I can, it doesn't hurt when I hold it out straight. Um, but I realized I couldn't do a burpee anymore. And hey, that's no, no problem, like no complaints there. I'm good, good with that. Um, but then I found out like I couldn't do other things too, like other kind of weightlifting exercise kind of things. And then I realized like I couldn't type on a, like a keyboard in a certain right angle, right? And it was like really bothering me. And it never really got better. So I'm like living with this thing for 10 or 12 months. And I found myself like talking to my wife about it. I'm like, yeah, you know, I'd like talk to somebody and I did these like exercises and it's just, it's not getting better. And I found myself saying like, maybe, maybe that's all there is, right? Like maybe that's just, Maybe that's it. I mean, I'm close to 40 now. Maybe 40-year-olds don't have wrists that work, and I only get one. And I'm like, what is that? Why do we do that? 
Some of you are going like, I've struggled with something not for 10, 12 months, but like 10, 12 years. And like the level of discouragement and what we're willing to settle for as a result, when problems persist for a long time, discouragement happens. But when problems persist for a long, long time, number two, excuses, excuses happen. We oftentimes, we make excuses to take the blame for something and, and rest it on something else or take the blame and rest it on someone else. Some of the most convicting moments in my life is like when I'm going off, something's not working, something's not happening, and I'm just so frustrated with it, and somebody stops me, somebody I look up to stop me and says, Dirk, do you want to feel better or do you want to get better? Turns out, I just wanted to complain and to excuse. I just wanted to feel better. If I wanted to get better, it requires some action. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point something out of this gentleman in the passage here. But I, it's important to realize, I'm not coming down on him because he is all of us. That's why John includes it. John sees something in this guy and going, it's not just a guy Jesus met. John's going, it's me. It's, it's all of us that are doing this. This guy, 38 years Jesus says, do you want to get well? And he's met, and he's met with verse 7. Sir, the paralyzed man replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And at once, the man was cured. He picked up his mat, and he walked one moment in the presence of Jesus, and it changed everything. But the excuse that he had been nursing and nurturing this whole time was, I've got nobody who's going to help me down. And Jesus, like, looks at him, and goes, like, nobody. You've got nobody. For 38 years, you've lived next to this pool, and nobody has helped. What about the guy who stops by and gives you something to eat every day? What about, the, what about the woman who gives you something to drink every day? What about the family on the way to synagogue, on the way to church, just take it upon themselves to meet your needs for that week, week in and week out without fail? Like you've been managing somehow. What, what about them? Sometimes, and it's true for me too, sometimes I don't see the help around me because I won't see the help around me. Now there, there's people around him. There's people around us, but we've got an excuse. Nobody's going to help me. Of course, I can't get the job. I don't have the right degree. Well, I don't have any degree at all. I never finished or I never started in the first place. So they want five years experience. So it might as well not even be worth it. I've got an excuse. I got, they don't recognize, they don't appreciate how I dress or they're threatened by my intelligence. I've got the excuses. I tried counseling. I tried going to church. I went three times in a row. I'm special, I'm unique, because nothing, none of that stuff works for me. And I'm saying that just, I, I'm not, the point is not coming down on them, it's not coming down on you. It's just an observation of the reality that we have that the longer a problem persists, the easier and easier, the lower the excuses hang for us to reach up to. And Jesus breaks into that when he says, do you want to get well? Discouragement happens, excuses happens, compensation happens. We compensate for what it is in our life that's not going well. 
for many of us, the last 18 months have not gone well. Often, the core of the thing is we've recognized we are living an uninspired life, kind of just drifting through in this quasi-depressed sort of state without really having much determination onto it at all. And so we compensate for things like that by picking up the phone and downloading our favorite app like Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, whatever, and just scrolling for minutes, turning to hours, just like scrolling through. And we're like, if I can't address this other thing, I guess at least I can do this thing. And we don't even realize how long it's been until the check battery indicator alert comes up and says, you know, 5% remaining. And you're going, I did it again. Two hours gone, lost. And like, for what? Right? I, I'm giving my life over to someone else, watching them live theirs instead of building a life for myself. Why does that happen? It's not going well over here. And so we compensate it in this area and we nurse these things and we keep them going. We do, we do this with shopping. This is like 90%, I'm convinced, of the purchases on Amazon. At least that's just maybe me. We're just like scrolling through because it's a double dopamine hit, Right? We get a little like endorphin rush when we, when we buy the thing and we're like, you're, you know, your thing is on its way and we're like, oh, I can't wait. And then it shows up and there's a box on the porch and we're like, yes. But it never like fills and fits the thing, the, the, the source originally that we're living disconnected lives. But it's like, well, maybe if I go back and scroll through and find the right thing, like it's going gonna, it's gonna to work. And so the longer this thing exists and persists, the more we compensate more we compensate over here. Sometimes, many of us, we've gotten just we, like so comfortable in our disconnected life that we're like, I don't need to show up and I don't need to be with people. I don't need to come in. I don't need to serve. I don't need to show up and meet people in church. Here's what I'll do. I'll compensate. I'll, I'll watch three other churches online. And that's like so much. I know I know Jesus is good with that. I read a tweet the other day. It was so good. It said, um, it said, do you have to go to church to be a Christian? No. No, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. You don't, it's like saying you have to be home to be married. But stay away long enough and the relationship will be affected. This is what the guy experiences. He's lived with this thing for so long. He's compensating. The excuses start to set in. The discouragement ramps up. And Jesus breaks in and goes, do, do you want to be well? I hope that for many of you coming out of this time together, you're like going, you know what? It's resolution time. Jesus is in front of me by faith, we believe, and he's asking, do you want this thing that has plagued me for so long? Do we want this to be over and done with? Do you want to be well? And for some of you, it's resolution time, and you're going, yes, yes, I want to be well. My, my determination and my desire is going to be greater than my disability, and I'm going to re-inspire and redouble down and go back to God and recommit myself and say, yes, I want to be well, God, and I know that you're the God of restoration and that you can do it as well, and I know that you care, and so like, we're going to go into this and we're going to do it again, and I hope, and I hope you do, but like that was last week. 
you believe that I can? And I think this week Jesus has something else for us. Because like there's some part of the story that this guy, he just doesn't get, does he? Like paying a close attention to the story, Jesus meets him. He understands the affliction and, and he meets him. And he's saying, do you want to be well? And Jesus is right next to him. And the guy doesn't look at Jesus. I imagine he's got his eyes staring on the, on the water, looking for each bubble to pop up because it's go time. And he needs every advantage that he can get. He doesn't even look at Jesus. He's looking at the water and he's going, yes, I want to get well. But listen, listen, every time I try to go in, somebody beats me to it. And just like stop and think about that for a second. The literal son of God is standing right next to him asking him if he wants to be well. And the guy's going, yeah, but the water. And sometimes like we do that, don't we? Like the affliction has been with us for so long. We can think of nothing except making the affliction go away. And God is going, do you think that I might have a work in your life? And you're going, but this thing right here isn't working. And Jesus, the literal son of God, is standing right next to us. And we're so fixated on the thing down there that we miss the God right here next to us. So I want, I want you to pray. I want you to have that dedication, that determination. I would love for you to go out of this place and to pray for healing, to pray for the job, to pray for the release, to pray for the direction in your life. But not at the expense of missing Jesus next to you. It's not worth that. Nothing is worth that. I want to share this quote by John Kelvin. Some of you have heard of a university named after him. It was Charles Spurgeon last week, so we're just going to Get back to my roots here. John Calvin said about this passage, he goes, the sick man does what we nearly all do. He limits God's help to his own desires and does not dare promise himself more than he conceives in his mind. The sick man does what we all do. Limit God's help to his own ideas. We limit God's help to his own ideas. We ask for the healing. We ask for the job. We ask for the restoration. We ask for the direction in life, not realizing that God's plan all along is using those things to hold us near him. That he's doing a work. But it seems like almost every time God moves, he changes us before he changes our circumstances. There's a book um, written about 20 years ago uh, by James Collin called Tears in the Heart. And James tells the story, the true story, of, of an exhausted mother, of a headstrong son, and an impatient father, and the work of God in their life. I'm just going to read the story for you because nobody tells it better than James does. And he says, cooling down after practice, Daniel, the son, had taken one last dive and his neck struck the bottom of the concrete pool. Daniel sustained damage to his C3, C4, and C5 vertebrae of his spine. However, two fusion operations followed and the surgeon was successful in preventing paralysis. It's not that kind of story. But Daniel 
Daniel's parents were overwhelmed at the long road ahead. Irene, mom, Irene's husband, dad, had lost his job the week before, and they were in shock, unable to clearly assess the financial damage. With three sons to raise, Irene was also a nursing student, and so her mind was focused on studies and keeping a tight schedule. They began the night which turned their lives upside down. Daniel would be recuperating at home for months if Irene left her loans. They'd have to be repaid, increasing their debt immediately. If her husband stayed with him, Irene could continue on with her studies and work three part-time jobs to offset some of the staggering bills. There would be no miracles for this family, no sudden cures or unexpected checks. It was just a headstrong son who didn't want any help, but at the same time couldn't refuse it. There was an impatient father who was not ready to care for an adult child and a hopeful mother trying to be the best student, wife, mom, and employee as she could. Was there no waters of healing for the Bud family? They opted to continue Irene's schooling, working three part-time jobs while dad quit, stayed home. And the blessings followed. Their headstrong son and his impatient father developed an unshakable bond which had eluded them in the years of making a living. Irene's husband learned how to wash the hair of a child who wore a neck brace. He learned how to cook meals and help his son with his studies. Daniel's behavior changed. First, he was forced to become dependent, and he learned to discuss problems without the inevitable argument. Father and son cemented their relationship with mutual love and respect. Unemployment gave Irene's husband the time to care for his beloved child. A time when he was able to become the father which he so dearly wanted to be. And that, according to Irene, was worth more than any paycheck. I want you to resolve not to let discouragement, excuses, and compensating for the pain to win. But more than that, what I want for you is to not get so hung up on the waters down there that you miss what God is doing everywhere around you. I want you to stand up and let's pray together. Our gracious God, you are on the move and you are working and you are moving in so many grander ways than we could ever even dare to ask or imagine. Because Lord, you are bigger than our imaginations. You are so much wilder than our dreams could possibly be. And so, God, through our affliction and through our pain, as long-lasting as it is, Spirit, may you give us the wisdom and the courage to look inside and to see not a new resolved strength, but to see you, God, at work in and through everything. And we pray this in all of the power, in the name of your Son, Jesus, risen from the dead. Amen. Hey, church. It's our sincere prayer that this message was able to help you find new life in Christ. And if you did find it helpful, would you consider donating to help drive this ministry forward? And don't forget, there's no substitute for doing life together. So find a worship experience, 
Join a small group or a serving team today. You can do all this at EncounterChurch.org.